0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Queirology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Queirology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Queirology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queirology. on belief and being. This is episode 85.
2: We have the inner strength to live differently, to do this differently, to face the challenges that living differently will entail. We can do this, we can do it!
1: The Reverend Elizabeth Edmond is an Episcopal priest and political strategist. She's the author of Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity, which released on Beacon Press in 2016. Liz has lived and worked on the front lines of many of the most pressing issues where religion and sexuality meet, serving as an inner-city hospital chaplain to people with AIDS from 1989 to 1995, and helping craft political and communication strategies for marriage equality efforts. In 2017, she partnered with Parody to create Glitter Ash Wednesday, a project to increase the visibility of progressive, queer-positive Christians, and to explore Christian liturgy through a queer lens. Her writing has been featured all over the place, including Salon.com, the Advocate, LGBT Nation, and Religion News Service. And she's been interviewed many times for feature and news articles in places like the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune. Liz lives in New York, uh, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. This has been a long time coming. Liz and I have been talking about having this conversation, uh, but our schedules finally synced (laughs) after a year. Uh, and I don't have any announcements today, other other than the fact that, I, as y'all noticed, Queerology has been very sporadic uh, over the summer. Uh, things have just been wild getting my book done, which is, well, you know what? It's a good excuse. <laughs> that is a very good excuse. But, I, but I'm hoping now that that has settled down a little bit, I'll get back into the, the weekly routine of having this. I have some great guests lined up, including uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder. Uh, we have the, the live podcast that I recorded last week uh, in Vancouver, BC with an incredible panel uh, talking about uh, the, the future of the movement. Uh, so, so watch for all of that coming up in the next few weeks. I'm super, super excited to get back into the routine of this. So with that, um, let's just go ahead and dive in. Liz, hi, welcome. Hi, Matthias. I'm so glad we're talking. Me too. It feels like such a long time coming. (laughs) I
2: I think it is, in fact. Yes, it
1: is. We've been talking about this for over a year. Yeah. Finally, here we are. Welcome. Thank you. So I'll start with a question I ask everyone. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity?
2: I've been, I'm so glad that you give that question to folks uh in advance because it's a wonderful con- question to think about a little bit so i've been thinking about it and i realize uh that um uh, identity markers for me are primarily wrapped up in how I make meaning of the world. So I've got uh, lots of identity markers that I could name, but I've got three particular ones that really stand out in terms of, you know, being lenses for my uptake of everything that's going on around me. Um, uh, the first one is that I am queer. And of course that's a that's a relational identity. That's a for me a sexual identity marker. Um and uh and it's an identity that uh I mean obviously informs things like, you know, the kinds of sexual relationships that I have and that that sort of thing. But it also is an identity that uh um uh, Places me in this sort of disruptive space, you know, in that lovely idea of queer theory as, you know, disrupting false binaries um, and puts me into kind of constantly calls me into liminal space, oftentimes marginal space, um, uh, uh, encourages me to listen to other voices on the margins, um, so that's my that's that's so that's one really important identity marker for me. Another identity marker uh, is that I am a a priest, um, and in Anglicanism, like in uh, Catholicism, priesthood is, it is prime. It's not a job so much as it is an identity, and it is an identity that uh, involves. Uh, um, uh, our relationship to the sacred uh, and how to be aware of that and how to invite other people in into that relationship, um, how to understand it, how to talk about it, you know. Um, so those two are really central for me, uh, my identity as someone who is queer and my identity as, as a priest. Um, and then in terms of how I, how I make meaning with those, uh, I'm also... There's not a good way to describe this. Um, professionally, I'm a political strategist, but I think in terms of identity, I would say I'm a political animal, um, and I guess maybe we all are to one degree or another. But um, but I'm constantly uh, uh, asking the question: um, How should we live together? That's like that's the the, the central question in um, political theory. You know, what is it? What is a human being? And based on that. How should we live together? Um, So I'm very interested in power dynamics and what's going on with power, how people are interacting, um, and not just people, you know, how is God involved in that? How is the world involved in that? How is nature involved in that? How are other, you know, beings involved in that Uh, power? Um, So those are three identities that uh, I'm just, I'm aware of um, constantly.
1: I mean, I I feel like your faith probably has threads in in each of those, one of them being quite obvious, the other's... Definitely, as well. I'd be curious about some of those interactions or intersections, maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean that's uh, uh, you know uh, uh, so so the so the book Queer Virtue was born largely of years and years of those three things interacting, with particular attention to the question of how queerness and priesthood interact within me, um, and this just fierce recognition that, despite the fact that people have been asking me my entire life, Wow, well, how do you reconcile your sexuality with your faith? Like, there was... They were already so deeply involved with each other that that question itself made no sense to me. Um, uh, so, wait, so you wanted to know... <laughs> ask me again? Yeah. <laughs> Is there a story <laughs> there? <Is> there any?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I would just be curious about... Uh, just kind of how I mean how your faith impacts, influences, weaves in and out of those identities. Um, I mean, it, it's it's very broad.
2: Oh no, it's a it's a great question. I wish I'd th- sort of. I'm, I'm I'm longing right now for a nifty little story to tell you. Mm-hmm. Come on, Liz, you're a preacher. Like, come up with a nifty little <laughs> anecdote right now. <laughs> That's always the challenge of preaching. Like, well, maybe the- I
1: mean maybe walk me back then to. Kind of like the awakenings of your queerness, and it was faith an equation in in the equation at that time? Um, did you come to it later in life? Like, how how did those things kind of come to be?
2: You know, it's part of my life that has been there always, always. Like, I've been pushing uh, uh, boundaries around gender and sexual identity since I was a small child um uh uh i tell the story in the book i think of um going uh, sneaker shopping with my mother when i was a little kid and this would have been in the 1960s and and at that time uh you know, like clothing sections of stores were really clearly demarcated. You know, there was the, the you know male people go over here, female people go over here. And people had real clear ideas about how you knew what those distinctions were. I mean, people just took it for granted. But point is, is that so So in order to get these sneakers, we had to go into the, you know, the boys section, quote unquote, boys section, people who presented as male at the time, Um And, uh, so I go and I find these sneakers and they're exactly what I wanted. I was so excited about it. I bring them to my mother and she, she's like, fine, fine, fine. And, and recall, this is Arkansas in the 1960s. So we take the sneakers, uh, up and the shoe salesman is saying, uh, those are boys' shoes. And my mother just went, you know, cut him off, went right past him to say, uh yes and and you know give us that size that you know size four um uh but the reason and i know that's not an obvious face story unless you knew my mother my mother uh was someone who felt god's presence in her life deeply and there were times when she was uh kind of conservative i mean we were in arkansas it was the 1960s but It always called her into a place of knowing herself. So when these parts of me began to emerge that were um, unconventional, uh, challenging, certain conventional ideas about what it would mean, for instance, to be a girl... um, I got these really clear messages from my mother and from from her her whole family that, uh, one, it mattered to tell the truth about that. And two, if it was just part of me and it was clear that it was, that's okay. Be yourself. Um, And it was just, in ways that are hard for me to articulate even now, it was so clear to me as that as a, as a child, that that was rooted in a larger sense of uh, truth and meaning that because of our location, because of my mother's faith, for me always was connected to a sense of transcendent reality, God's presence in our lives. You know, telling the truth about who you are, that is a piece of what you do. To show God you made me and I love your creation, including in me.
1: Mm. Mm, I love that. I, I, I mean, you you argue in your book, one of like the, the core arguments in Queer Virtue is that Christianity is like fundamentally fundamentally queer. In so much as that it, it transcends boundaries, it breaks boundaries, um, which is kind of what queerness is. I would love to hear a little bit more about that like that that feels like i mean to my old Matthias conservative ears, that feels like a scandalous statement
2: <laughs> well, it is a scandalous statement no it absolutely is a scandalous statement, scandalous in the sense that it is uh that it is disruptive, sort of conventional ideas um and scandalous in the sense that in disrupting conventional ideas about the sacred, about who we are, it pulls us into liminal space that is not necessarily safe in kind of a conventional idea, um, uh, and yet it is, it, is, it is kind of the safest space we can be if you, you know, cast your lot with uh, our, our mysterious transcendent queer uh, God, but that 's a little bit sorry had that, that gets that gets a little not not so clear about what what it means to say that Christianity is inherently queer, so you know uh, uh, my work draws on uh, queer theory, and in queer theory, the word queer becomes a verb, and it involves disrupting false binaries and upending uh, conventional ideas about power upending power structures when they become. Uh, oppressive of people and and coercive Um, so it really matters to say that in that in that disruption in that upending you know it's not to say that uh, uh, that all binaries are bad or that all boundaries are bad what it is to say is that there are times when binaries are false There are times when boundaries are imposed in order to pit people against each other. And that's the place where I see uh, the Christian tradition, um, particularly as lived and articulated by Jesus and Paul, Uh, uh, the, the tradition itself constantly challenges us in those moments of antagonism. To become aware of who we are, aware of the other person, giving that other person space to name themselves, um, recognizing what it is in that moment that seems to have pitted us against each other, and take that antagonistic energy and intentionally, deliberately put it aside.
1: You mentioned Jesus and Paul. Um, I feel like in so many conversations that I have with people in the last 10 years or so, like Paul gets a really bad rap and it's warranted yeah. some of it um but I'm realizing how rare it is that I hear someone talk positively about Paul mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. say more about that
2: yeah yeah I mean, you know, Paul was a problematic guy. He he just was, you know, and uh, but he was human. You know, Paul never claimed to be, you know, partly divine. Right. right. So he was a human being. And in some ways, he's a model for us with that. What is it when you're trying to forge some kind of community? uh that's based on a you know on a challenging definition of what it is to love you know you know not just in kind of a nice you know glib feel good definition of love but a, a, that challenging you know how what is it to really do the work of that um uh, and that's what paul was all about you know you know love is the glue that holds us together how do we live that um so so paul himself gets it wrong sometimes um, and, and it's, and, but if you see the core arguments he's making, it's possible to say, to see when he's getting it wrong and say, oh, Paul, bless your heart. You know, I know, I know you're trying here. So, okay, so there, there's, there's that. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, what Paul is trying to do is to take these very difficult ideas not always complex, but in terms of living them out, difficult, right, challenging, deeply challenging ideas, what it means actually to live Jesus's teachings in the world. And he's trying to, to, to breed these ideas in actual human communities. How do we really do this together? Fine to say, love your neighbor. What does that mean? You know? fine to try to hold yourself accountable take the moat out of your own eye you know have faith the size of a mustard seed fine to say all those things but if you're really trying to live them you know know, like you know don't store up any treasure for yourself here only store it up in heaven you know like i mean these are not easy (laughs) sell all you have and give it to the poor my god you know, I mean, nobody who's tried to walk this walk has not come across these teachings and said, I can't do that. <laughs> How the hell do you do that, right? Okay, Paul is trying to take these ideas seriously, trying to keep them connected to what was already for him and, and for Jesus an ancient tradition, an ancient ethical tradition and a faith tradition hold all bring that to a whole lot of people who never were part of that ancient tradition to begin with and and allow these people to sort of figure out how to be together put down all the inherent antagonisms that exist between you know the the Greeks and the and the and the and the folks who were part of Judaism going back how how do we then live together and he and he charts out this this course, which just at a theological level is complex and breathtaking at times, just breathtaking.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking about, like, you're you're kind of naming how, how some of like the, these ideas presented in the New Testament, especially by Jesus, and, the, and then Paul trying to work that out in his theology of like, how do you actually do this? Like, these things seem impossible, um, and that's making me think of. These binaries that you're talking about, and one of the binaries that you highlight in the first chapter of your book is, is kind of this idea of death and life, and and like the impossibility of that not being a binary anymore. I I don't know if I said that well. <laughs> um, no, that's. No, I think that's right. Yeah, but, but that idea of like these two things that seem so opposed to each other, death and life, no longer. Are a binary. That is such a, a beautiful concept. It sounds impossible. You play with that a lot. I, I would love to hear about some of that.
2: I mean, again, you know, it. Uh you know it, it that it, it it does matter to say that that at least in human conception binaries exist i mean you know you and i are talking to each other over you know through 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 things that are made possible by computers and were it not for binary code computers wouldn't exist so there are ways that binaries exist and are in fact helpful to us i have no idea what god makes of that stuff but um uh but it is it is uh, clear to me that um Uh, it is super easy for human beings to sort of rest in, uh, simplistic binary thinking that overlooks deeper truths, deeper interactions that are actually, um, taking place, uh, I'm interested in the way you just lifted up life and death as binaries cuz you're absolutely right. I mean that it's that that that's something that I that's one of the binaries that I see uh Jesus shattering in the the events of the you know of of the, those last 3 days, you know, the, of his execution and death and then the resurrection. That, that is to me this shattering of a binary. Um, uh, the reason that that's important for Christians is because what that what that um, helps us to understand. This is what Paul saw, saw so clearly. What this helps us to understand is that in terms of power in our world, death is not the strongest thing we know there's 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 that God's power that the that the the, the the life force that exists in God which we identify as as love itself as a verb that life force encompasses um, uh, death as a force at least within our lives. Um, uh, my suspicion is that there are cosmic forces at work that could be broadly characterized as life and death or sort of construction and destruction that I think always live in tension with each other. And we feel this in our daily lives all the time. This is part of what we grapple with, is how do we choose to be part of a constructive reality rather than a destructive reality. Um, But there is also death as just a natural force. Um, You know, there are times when death is a blessing. That's just true. There are times when something needs to, needs to die, and to be able to embrace that, hold it, honor that, um, we need that in our, in, our, in our human existence. What we don't need to do is buy into the idea that, that, that death is a power that we wield as a weapon over other people. And that's the specific kind of death that the resurrection says uh, that the resurrection triumphs over. No, death in that way, it's not for us to claim and wield over other people in that way.
1: I I, I mean, I feel like as as we kind of unpack this idea of the the queerness of Christianity, I I feel like it kind of leads us to, to this idea of then... God being queer. I mean I mean if if this is a faith practice that is born out of a god that has manifested themselves in the world there has to be queerness within the divine. W- would you agree with that or
2: oh yeah. Yeah, no 100%. I um uh uh, uh the fact that we can experience God's presence at all to me is that's just evidence i mean and i don't ta- and i don't use like sort of scientific language a lot but to me it is it is evidence of uh of of a of a transcendent reality that it interacts with our lives um uh in ways that sort of challenge our understanding of our of our corporeal existence um so there is liminality in that that is that there's that's that is energy that is an energy that is itself uh, uh uh transitional it is uh uh it it sort of challenges us to understand what is what is real so that's liminal that is liminal energy um Uh, and this liminal energy becomes involved in our lives, constantly shaking us up, you know, shaking up that, that, uh, uh, that those conventional ideas about what power is or how we should live or whether we're opposed to each other because we exist in separate individual bodies. Um, it is the, the power of God that, call into liminal space that helps us understand how we are fundamentally connected in in fact i would say it is a proposition of faith to say that that the way we are fundamentally connected has something to do with the essence of that liminal energy that that the queerness of 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 God as transcendent reality.
1: You've said the word liminal and liminal space, liminal energy many many times throughout this conversation. The space is in between. So in 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 the therapy world, we talk often about how well someone can tolerate uncertainty. Um, other language would be how well someone can live in that space in between, how, how well someone can exist in liminal spaces. And in some ways that makes me think of, of queerness, the the tolerating of, of things being uncertain, um, of not being able to sit within deep certainty. and, And, um, and I, I mean, I, I always think of certainty often being used as a weapon, it's unnerving. It's hard. It takes a lot of work to be able to sit in those spaces and not run to the comfort of certainty. I, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but that's where my brain's going. <laughs> so. I...
2: Well, you know, no, no, I think that I think that's I think that's a... Uh uh one is you're right and two is um uh this this gestures toward really important questions about what all this stuff what all this stuff means you know because it is kind of it's not you can't just kind of be in limbo all the time the fact that we have bodies means we need to eat we need safe spaces we need places where we're not constantly and you know feeling anxiety about what's behind me now um you know so uh uh so it strikes me that for instance you know uh uh as as a as a priest, um, uh, I've you know I've done a lot of thinking about what does that mean exactly. What is a priest? And and years ago, when I was in the ordination process, a friend of mine gave me this wonderful definition. And what she said was, um, a priest is someone who steps into places of remarkable vulnerability, and by doing so, invites other people to enter the sacred. Now, so you know one could say, you know like in a uh, so the, so a, a priest, I think, is someone who is out in the world, and we're sort of supposed to be aware of that all the time what is it what is it to be vulnerable, and how do you model that? you know one does that in really particular ways on you know for Christians on Sunday morning, you know, you go to church and then and there's this way that that's what we're supposed to be modeling in our in our communities together, but um I am fortunate enough to be uh, someone who has the economic means to have a home, um, you know, my own my own home that I share with my children. Um, and so on Saturday night, I am able to retreat to a space that feels safe to me. And on Saturday night, um, I... You know, I go to bed, and it's a place that is comforting and solid, um, and I need that. And on Sunday morning, I got I get up out of that comfortable, safe space, and I you know, say some prayers, and I have food that nourishes me that I need, and, and, you know, and I walk out the door, and then I go to church, and, and I'm, and I am very now deliberate and intentional to say, okay, now I'm going to be a priest now, you know, like I'm now, I'm going to be questioning what is, you know, what, what is solid, and what is, uh, you know, the, the ways that I, you know, w- what does it mean to be safe, I'm going to be like, like really deliberate now. About challenging uh, my attachment to all of that, all of that stuff. Now I dare say that is a different way to approach safety than someone who says those people over there are a threat to us. Therefore, we're gonna build a wall. And we're going to haul out the biggest weapons we can. And we're going to make sure these folks have all the rules stacked against them. Um, or we're going to lock them up. Or we're going to, you know, that, um, it's a different way to think about what makes us safe. And, and it is crystal clear to me that while Christianity does afford ways to establish measures of safety and comfort, there are also ways to seek what people might consider to be safety and comfort that are not acceptable. So that's one, I think that's 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 part of the challenge of the tradition, is to look at where am I, where's my comfort coming from? Is it coming at somebody else's expense? And how so? You know, how much?
1: Yeah, because you're kind of highlighting that tension of the, the sense of like, we absolutely need safety. <laughs> we absolutely need some of those things in lives that we can call certain. Um, And what do we do with those? How do we hold those realities? How do we work with those realities within ourselves and within the world? Um, And, and, and undo going back to what you said, systems of power that, that oppress and, and profit. And I mean, and so on and so on.
2: I think it, it also matters to say here that, uh, in the in the book I have this dialogue with my friend uh Kat dos Santos, who is uh uh deputy director at the Anti Violence Project, and Kat observes um that there is this privileged idea that safety is a given that we are supposed to have safety. Um, I've had the incredible gift um, for, for the past year or so. I've been going regularly to a synagogue, uh, CBST, which is the LGBTQ synagogue here in New York. And Sharon Kleinbaum, the rabbi, just reminds us constantly about the need to be grateful all the time, you know, grat- to cultivate gratitude. Um, and if you put those two ideas together that safety is not a given and that we're to cultivate gratitude, then the safety that one has should be whatever, in whatever measure you can come up with it, should be something that you don't take for granted and grab hold of, you know, like c- clutch, you know, but whatever spaces you have that feel safe and comfort- comforting, you know, that should be something that you, you are grateful for aware of the fact that this is not a given i you know i haven't earned this i haven't anything it is a gift from god to have a space that i can enter into and feel oh god i'm this is you know this is home and it's such a gift simply to feel that way you know you turn that into you recognize the privilege of that and say thank you god thank you for that
1: I mean, for some reason, as you, as you think about that, my mind is going to the prayers that I would say as a kid before every meal, like that that practice that, I mean, you know, 18 years of that, it feels trite, <laughs> but I, I am I'm now thinking like, I haven't prayed before a meal. I haven't said thank you. I haven't had like that gratitude practice and mm. I don't know how long yeah. and and thinking about how, how special that kind of, I mean, when it truly is gratitude. I, I don't know why that that thought popped into my head, but, but you're right. I, I'm also thinking about Brene Brown and, and her work. I, I can I feel like I can barely go an episode without talking about Brene Brown. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, she, but she talks about gratitude, building a gratitude practice, as being the antidote to that sense of that that kind of feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop. That like. Um, yes. That sense of un- of uncertainty and when is this all going to go away? Um, she says, "Practice gratitude. Write down five things that you're grateful for every day and put it in a jar." Uh, I, I all of that to say, it feels like gratitude is a really important practice.
2: <laughs> well, and one of the things that Rabbi Kleinbaum talks about a lot is the fact that gratitude is a survival strategy; that it is necessary. Um, to survive difficult times, Um, gratitude and joy, you have to find, you have to find both, you have to cultivate both. Um, You know, we're living in such fiercely challenging times right now and such frightening times right now. And people are, you know, now speculating openly about uh whether the human race is going to survive this next century um and that's not you know that's not a far it's not far-fetched to begin to imagine scenarios where we don't survive or where the you know life on the planet doesn't survive although i have to say the planet itself is incredibly resilient and i think we we will kill ourselves off before we destroy the rest of the life that is built in here but regardless the point is is that uh there are uh there are forces at work right now i i think a lot about the rise of global fascism right, right now you know and 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 the simple truth is we don't know how bad it's going to get um we we don't know how much worse you know the, the climate is going to have to be before uh before, before, uh, world leaders who are now putting the brakes on efforts to deal with that actually get it together to start really, you know, addressing the magnitude of what has to happen to try to slow that, slow, slow down climate change. Um, so, uh, uh, how do you survive in the midst of that? How do you stay tuned in enough to continue to be a, a, a to continue to lend positive energy? You know, to try to keep us moving in a in a better direction, or or turn us around in the ways that we're clearly moving in an unhealthy direction. You know, how do we how do we keep at that? And Rabbi Kleinbaum would say you got to cultivate gratitude and joy
1: wow I, I mean in some ways it feels like another binary like, like i'm i'm thinking about how difficult it is as as things feel more and more desperate as things feel more and more catastrophic like 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 kind of when you log into twitter and it feels like the world is going to shit gratitude feels like the opposite of the feeling that comes up when I'm when I'm browsing my Twitter feed and so so in some ways I'm I'm hearing you say and and your rabbi say like we have to find a way to bring those things together and and sit in that
2: you know you, you yeah I mean because I because what one of the things that I think gratitude does is it helps you keep a bigger picture in view um I was. I can't remember where I was reading this, but I just read this really moving story about uh, uh, a man who um, uh, was separated from his children uh, during the Holocaust. And he sends his children off. uh, It's a Jewish family. He sends his children off uh, to find some measure of safety or at least allow them to survive. And he knows uh that at some point he's going to be rounded up and he writes this letter to his daughters um and is saying to them uh you, you you know grow in your faith grow to be the best young women you can be um and and his letter is this just beautiful testament to his faith, encouraging them to rely on their faith and to try to transcend the ugliness and the violence that is around them, to hang on to a bigger picture of what they are caught up in as Jewish people, as human beings. Something bigger is it is at play here and you know so many of the problems that we face have involve like you know abandoning these the bigger pictures you know so like we, you know we overuse antibiotics to have like this short-term profit you know and now we've created this massive problem with you know resistance to antibiotics you know um you know uh, a lot of the resistance to climate change is it's this desire to continue to have short-term gain instead of trying to think broadly no we are caught up in a bigger a bigger system of life which as people of faith we have to say god created all this but right now in order to have short-term gain we're failing to see the bigger picture and we're failing to draw on that sense that we can trust that we are part of a bigger picture and we have the inner strength to live differently to do this differently, to face the challenges that living differently will entail. We can do this. We can do it. You know, and there's something about cultivating gratitude that I think gives you the intestinal fortitude to say, okay, count me in here.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder maybe to wrap up, like we're talking and the people who listen to this podcast are are mostly queer people who, have had some interaction with faith at one point or another, whether they still identify that way or not. Um, but there are a lot of people who are, I mean, myself included, who are kind of searching for faith, searching for what that faith looks like, that bigger picture you're talking about. And I, and I don't know that I really want to put you on the spot, but you talk about this letter, <laughs> this, this letter of, of hope, have hope, um, as a priest in your, in your priestly function. And as a queer person, what's that hope for you? What what kind of grounds you in that? I I can keep going because of this. Um, this is what I hold on to.
2: Um, you know, this is why I love the question that we started with so much. That question, who am I? And 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 in and in that, who am I? What do I know to be real? You know, um, what do I know to be real because it's part of who I am so so I come back to what are these identities that I carry around that help me make meaning of 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 the world? Um, you know, so there so I have my 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 queer identity which is inherently relational, you know that that my queerness. Keeps me connected to others. It uh, others uh, um, who 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 discern uh, some iteration of queerness for themselves, um, as a, whether that's a sexual identity or a religious identity. But there's this connection. Um, that we feel and that we and that we can cultivate priesthood for me is also fiercely relational. Um, uh, and then this business about being a political animal means that I'm constantly engaged in trying to understand what those what those those mean for us. Um, but those relational identities they give me such hope because they constantly put me in touch with other people, with God, in ways that challenge me and surprise me. One of the messages that I always want to leave queer people with is the importance of getting in touch with queerness as, as, a, as, as an identity, but also as a lens for meaning um queerness as something that makes it possible to uh, to live better to expect more of ourselves to feel the value of that and and to, and to share it. We have work to do this business about understanding, you know i love queerology i love that you take you know the idea of queerness and you blend it with theology to say what is you know queerology how does it help us to understand who we are well that's what we're called to do and and we must do that in relationship with one another so we we so we you know I, I, feel like I'm just stammering and not no, answering this at so all. Good, but Matthias, <laughs> well the fact that you and I are having this conversation right now, you know, this gives me hope. I love it that you ask these questions and I love it when we sit down together to to ask challenging questions. What does this mean about what's going on in our world right now? You know? How does your understanding of it inform my understanding of it? How is God at work in this very conversation to shake me up and help me to say, oh, my God, I hadn't even seen it like that before. And that's challenging to who I am. And it's like it helps me like have the fuel that I need because it's like, wow, That's incredible, you know, and I can now, I can, I can, you know, climb out of the safety of my bed, which brings me comfort and walk out into the world to find other people and bear each other up and challenge each other and, you know, try to keep it going.
1: I'm so good. Liz, thank you. This was... Just a treat. It's So good,
2: Matthias. Well, thank. I feel exactly the same way. And thank you. And 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 to all the folks who are listening in to to this. You know, um, you know, thanks to the folks who create an audience and who I you know I know are having these conversations out there in the world. And if I could do like a virtual blessing.
1: Yes, please. That's
2: what I'm like. I'm literally got my hands out right now. So I just want to say to the folks who are listening, there is a virtual blessing coming your way right now. And Matthias, absolutely to you. Bless, you know, thank you for the blessing that this is inviting us all into this conversation.
1: Thank you. You can find Liz over at QueerVirtue.com. She's on Twitter at Liz underscore Edmund. And be sure to go pick up a copy of Queer Virtue. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite books out there on queer theology. It's so good. Order it now. Read it over the weekend and let me know what you think. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from his listeners. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support. A really easy way to support queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to Roberts.com slash review and I'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye!